This message is brought to you by Cornerstone Gospel Church in Frankston, Australia.
So we want to go on into the message this morning uh, and continue with that. Um, we've been looking at how the enemy has uh, specific um, strategies or plans uh, to employ against our lives, and we've seen that the enemy seeks to deceive um, and he seeks to destroy. And last the last couple of weeks we looked at uh, the enemy as a, a ruler, that he, he desires to rule your life and bring you into a place where you will supplant the will of God for your life with your own will, um, where you exercise your own willfulness uh, against the Lord. And this is in keeping with his nature because he declared that he was going to ascend his throne above the throne of God. So all of these things uh, that he seeks to uh, employ as strategies against us, they stem from his heart and they're, they're really a living example of out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. So we want to have a look this morning at, and this will be two parts as well this week and next week, as Satan as an accuser. <coughs> so he is an accuser and a, an accuser of the brethren. Excuse me just for a moment. And so we want to um, just consider some thoughts on, on this this morning. Um, Satan being an accuser of the brethren. So our scriptures, again, are, um, are taken from the NASB uh, through through this series. Um, so let's have a look at a couple of opening verses here. Revelation 12, verse 10, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ, his Messiah, have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them before our God day and night. Now, there's an important image for you to uh, notice there that the accuser of the brethren accuses them before God. So, so this is an access that Satan has to come before God and speak uh, of his heart about the children of God. Uh, this is That's a big issue in itself and, and would require some messages to unlock the understanding of that. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that, and here's the important part of this about um, our need to be forgiving towards people, and it's for a purpose, uh, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. And so Paul uh, indicates in 2 Corinthians 10, uh, chapter 2, that there is a, a way in which the enemy is able to use uh, unforgiveness as an advantage against us. 2 Corinthians 7, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world 
produces death. Excuse me, I'm going to get another translation uh, for that. I just want to read that out of the King James for you because it's a it's a wonderful verse and um, a good habit for you would be to use various translations in uh, your Bible study because it opens up a greater understanding because, you know, different... Different translations, um, while the, the Word of God is perfect in its original text, the King James is not the original text and neither is the New American Standard. So uh, sometimes that language, though, of the King James just brings out a beauty in the text that that our minds can really grasp. And 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, For godly sorrow, now, in our text here that we have on the screen, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God. Um, we could say a sorrow that it has, uh, has originated with the plan and the purpose of God, right? For godly sorrow works repentance to salvation, not to be repented of or not to be ashamed of, uh, not to be regretted, not to be turned from, but the sorrow of the world works death. So uh, a fantastic verse, and that's a really good verse for you to memorize, 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. So this is part of the purpose of the gospel message itself, and it's part of the purpose of uh, the work of Scripture in our lives when it brings rebuke, uh, uh, when it brings exhortation to us, when it brings discipline to us, that the word of God would produce in us a sorrow toward God for the actions that are being corrected from Scripture. And as a result, that leads to repentance. And it's a repentance of such that we need not be ashamed and need not forsake. So the idea of godly sorrow is a powerful idea. Now, that is not akin, it's not even related at all to guilt tripping people with um, some kind of a false message, and this is what often happens in churches, uh, that people are guilt-tripped uh, by the church, and we'll see a little more on that in a moment. Zechariah, as we consider Satan as an accuser of the brethren, because Christians have a victorious position in Christ, but what happens when we don't live in that position, when we don't uh, take advantage of that position. And I don't mean take advantage like some sort of name and claim it thing, but you and I are living in the victorious position that we have in Jesus Christ. When we uh, have a lack of understanding regarding the, um, uh, the defences that are inherent to us in our position in Christ, we leave ourselves vulnerable. And, you know, when a believer sins, uh, I'll just take this away from the screen for a moment because I think it might distract us from what I'm trying to say. When a believer sins, um, what happens then if we don't have the right defences in our lives concerning what the Word of God uh, um, uh, teaches us? Um, you know, what, what do we do about that? So suppose we sin, what, what then? Now, we've just read in these texts, in 2 Corinthians 2 and in Second, uh, especially in 2 Corinthians 2 um, and in Revelation, that Satan has plans. He's got devices against the people of God. Um, he's, he's not satisfied um, 
with just seeing you suffer. Notice the word that um, is used um, in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 10, uh, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan. Um, and then, uh, you know, th this, this idea, no advantage of you uh, would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Schemes is the word that I'm looking for. The, the Greek word is noema, and it's, it means thoughts. Uh, it means that which is thought out but it means the, a planned purpose, for we are not ignorant of his purposes. He's not satisfied. It's not enough just to lead someone into sin. He's not satisfied just to see suffering um, that ensues from sinful choices. His strategy goes further than that. The enemy has a strategy that goes beyond that, and um, he's, he wants to see uh, a believer doubly defeated. He wants to see us both down and out. And um, Zechariah gives an interesting um, and fascinating account of uh, Joshua standing before the Lord. Now, remember that Satan is an accuser of the brethren, and the, the term for this is actually like a chief prosecutor. So, in other words, he brings a, a prosecu prosecutorial assault to God about the people of God. And so when he speaks to God about you or about believers or about an individual believer, he speaks in a prosecutorial manner about that person, pointing out to the judge the deficiencies of that person's life and therefore why that person should be forsaken, punished, or whatever it might be, whatever his agenda is. So. Uh, Zechariah chapter 3. Now, remember, he's the accuser and he's the one who's bringing forward the charges. Zechariah 3 verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand? plucked from the fire. So here's the Lord defending uh, Joshua. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. And he spoke and said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said to him, see, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with festal robes. Then he said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you walk in my ways and if you will perform my service, then you will also govern my house and also have charge of my courts and I will grant you free access among those who are standing here. All right. So we can see this uh, scene uh, of the accuser bringing a charge against the enemy. Let's move on here this morning and consider Satan as the accuser. And 
The first thing to understand about how the enemy works uh, against you is that, first of all, he will target your heart and conscience. It is interesting, isn't it, as Daz um, brought up the the um, prayer requests regarding the programs that the government has introduced to children in the schools with the Safe Schools program and these kinds of things, uh, which has um, caused lots of people, in fact, to take their children out of schools and begin homeschooling them. Um, and part of the reason for that is that that agenda it targets the sensitive conscience of young people in order to try and harden their conscience to what would be the norms of morality. And once a conscience is hardened, it is easier then to uh, to walk in sinful paths and, and to head in those kinds of directions. Um, so this scene that we're looking at here, it's not, it's not like anything we've looked at in recent weeks. Um, the setting is like a courtroom, and God is a judge. Joshua is a high priest. Um, uh, uh, sorry, Joshua, the high priest, is the defendant. Um, and Satan is, in this situation, a prosecutor of Joshua. So God is a judge. Satan is a prosecutor. Now, Zechariah 3 verse 1 says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So the case is stated against Joshua and it probably, um, when you read it, you might think, well, that doesn't sound very alarming. Now, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. The high priest was always to wear clean garments. And um, he had certain procedures for washing himself uh, in order to perform the ceremonial uh, activities that he had to perform. Um, and so Zechariah's vision uh, occurred at a time when Israel was continuing in their sin against the Lord. And the people had returned after their ba Babylonian captivity. But rather than learning from their time being chastised, um, you know, they, they hadn't learned their lesson. So they were in sin at the time of this, uh, you know, at, at the time of this uh, vision that it was occurring. So there was a hope that when the children of Israel returned from Babylon that they would have um, walked in righteousness and been obedient to the Lord, but instead they were continuing in sin. And so Ezra, Nehemiah, Zechariah, Haggai, uh, and Malachi all reveal the sins of Israel that they committed. And, you know, some of them were Jewish men divorcing their wives um, and marrying heathen women. This is where the phrase said, divorcing the wife of your covenant. Um, and so it wasn't about them. Uh, the essential thing, as bad as it is, divorce, um, the point of that text is not so much the divorce, it's that they were not only divorcing, but they were then marrying heathen women. And this was ditching the wife of their Hebraic covenant that they were in uh, to marry women from pagan and occultic backgrounds. Um, so they were doing that. The Jew Jewish merchants were lending money at exorbitant interest rates. This was forbidden in the law as well. Um, the priests were robbing God and keeping the best sacrifices for themselves. Uh, this was forbidden, all these kinds of things. 
And this explains why Joshua's garments were dirty. His priestly garments were dirty because he was there to represent uh, the people of God before God in this vision. And so his garments represented the sins of the nation uh, in that situation. So Satan knew that they were sinful. And in the courtroom, he's prosecuting the case that Israel should be judged. Um, that, uh, and that's what he was there for, to prosecute uh, Israel or to prosecute Joshua in this situation as a representative of the nation of Israel. So how does his argument go? How does Satan's argument look? It, it might look and sound something like this. Um, Your Honour, let's now consider these servants of yours, Israel. They are a rebellious and disobedient lot. After returning to their land from Babylon, where you chastened them for a season uh, to learn obedience, they mock your goodness by disobeying you continually. You are a holy God, are you not? And aren't these people supposed to be a holy people, representative of the God who has chosen them? If you are holy and just, you must judge Israel. If you do not judge them, you are a hypocrite to your own nature and justice and law because we all know Israel is guilty. Now, I'm just making it up. I'm not, that's not scripture. Um, I'm just considering how the prosecutor might speak uh, to the judge in that situation. Um, that's one thing to consider. But what about Joshua standing there as the high priest in his, uh, in his filthy garments? Um, certainly standing there in that situation, his uh, conscience would have been smitten to stand before the God who he loves and serves and to stand there in that unclean condition when everything about his ministry and life was about cleanness before God, about interceding uh, on behalf of the people for God. And, and part of that intercession was about preparing himself and washing himself and being clean so that when he stood, in the presence of God as he ministered sacrifices, he would be seen in right relationship with God. And here he is uh, dirty and, you know, his conscience smitten. What what um, uh, defence would he have? He was plainly on display before the whole courtroom. So in essence, by standing there in these dirty robes, he's, he's standing there as a display of human sin, human uncleanness. Uh, because of sin. So when you and I have disobeyed God, Satan moves in to continue the downtreading of our lives and uh, he, he wants to move in with a finishing stroke and he attacks um, the heart and the conscience in that time. That's why... Um, uh, you know, sin can be so devastating. It's not just because of the sin itself, but it's also because the way in which the enemy will assault us in the the heart mind, this realm of emotions and, and thinking, the the conscience, uh, these areas of life, he will attack us there. And so, you know, um, 
he, he will sneer, oh, so you call yourself a Christian, hey? So why did you do this? You're not a very good Christian, are you? You go to church and you hold the Bible and, you know, you walk with that um, air of, of Christian dignity, um, but uh, look at what you've done. Imagine if your friends at church knew what kind of person you really were, um, they would throw you out. So, you know, his, his accusation is merciless. Um, and, you know, before we sin, while, while we're being tempted, that's when he whispers to us, go on, you can get away with this. No one's going to know. But once we've sinned, his whisper is more along the lines of, you'll never get away with this. You're condemned. And this is, uh, this is how he works. And, and I know that as I'm speaking here this morning that you, like me, have experienced that. I don't mean you like me. I mean you, just as me, have experienced that, that you have, during a time of temptation, um, started rationalising and working through this thing and thinking, I can, I can do this, I can get away with it, whatever. And then once you've sinned, you know the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Um, but that's a good thing, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The problem is the condemnation of the enemy. Uh, and this is what he seeks to do. And uh, his hateful voice will try to lead you into all kinds of places of despair. So, um, and he, he, he does want Christians to give up through that despair. He, he does want us to uh, speak of ourselves in that way. I am, I am no good. I may as well give up. So uh, let's, let's continue on here this morning. So Satan targets your heart and conscience, and his weapon is this accusation. When Satan talks to you about God, um, he lies. He lies about God. Has God said, God knows in the day you eat of it, you shall be like him. So he lies about God. Um, he will try to make you dissatisfied with God, um, just as he did with Adam and Eve, that, that the uh, situation, the circumstance they were in, uh, they would be discontent with that. So he lies to you about God, but but um, when he talks about about you to God, he will embell em embellish the truth. Look at this servant of yours, and he will point out the failure uh, before God, because he is an accuser of the brethren and a, and a prosecutor has to take the failings of the criminal and account for them as true as they are and try to uh, embellish them in order to achieve his purpose of securing a prosecution, securing a guilty verdict. So these are there's some powerful thoughts here because one of the things Scripture shows us is that Satan does have access to the throne of God and he has access to the throne of God to remind God about God's servants uh, and their failures and the conditions of their hearts and these kinds of things. So you and I know about this accusation because we, we have a sense of it in our own heart and conscience. We, we get this kind of um, internal voice 
that works and, and the enemy will try to exploit that internal voice. What did he say about Abraham? Who knows? But uh, maybe it was something like, look, look at Abraham. Look at what he just did. Look at what he's done. Look, he, he lied about his wife. He's fornicating, committing adultery with his wife's servant. Um, look at what David just did. He's committed adultery. He's lusted after that woman. Oh, now look what he's done. He's, he's sent her husband to the front line of battle uh, so that he'll be killed. So the enemy is, is going to accuse He's going to bring an accusation about you to God. He is going to bring an accusation about you to you. And the ploy here is to play with your mind and to cause you not to believe what Scripture records about you, but to cause in you a, a absence of confidence in God confidence in faith in Christ Jesus and a believing of the enemy's lies about your life so that you will walk in the um, confusion and despair that that brings because this will nullify your Christian life. I've met people who um, have lived in condemnation of the enemy and it nullifies them because they think because of a failure, and it may have been a terrible failure, but they think there's no escaping that. There's no way to get out of that failure and that uh, in this life that's their cross to bear, so to speak, and, and um, that they have to walk in that way and forever their life is basically nullified and there is no victory in their lives as a result of that because that's how they walk. Think about Peter. Denying the Lord three times, um, you know, there was tremendous weight of guilt upon Peter. He went and wept bitterly after he had looked in the Lord's face with that knowing look that, Peter, I warned you of this. Don't be confident in your own, uh, in your own heart. I warned you this would happen. And he went and wept bitterly. What an opportunity for the enemy to bring accusation against Peter so that he would fail in his, uh, in his service. So we have to learn to discern Satan's accusation from the Spirit's conviction. This is really important for us because if we put everything down to being the enemy's accusation, then we're not going to understand how the Spirit is bringing conviction and leading us uh, out of that sinful behaviour. A feeling of guilt and shame is good when it's from the Spirit of God. If I do something wrong, I am guilty. If I do something wrong, I'm guilty and I should be ashamed. And so when the Spirit of God 
is working on my heart to bring conviction about that. That's a good thing because, as we said before, out of 2 Corinthians 7, that sense of shame and that knowledge of guilt should lead to a sorrow towards God that leads to a repentance from that sin. This is not the same, though, when the enemy brings his accusation uh, because the enemy has a um, uh, a different purpose in his. So there is a, a conviction of the spirit and there is an accusation of Satan and there's a way of recognizing these two. Um, the spirit uses the word in love to restore fellowship with the Father. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He will bring a correction to us from the word. When you sin um, and, and the, the Spirit of God brings the word of God to your mind regarding that sin, and he does that for the purpose of convicting you. And yes, it will shame you, but his purpose is that you and I would be shamed to repentance and restoration of fellowship with the Father. And, in, and, and an example of that is, um, as I just mentioned with Peter, he was restored to fellowship with the Father afterward. So it came that after a period of intense conviction, and Peter did feel an intense conviction, that after a period of that conviction, he was restored to um, fellowship with the Father. And it's a, it's a wonderful thing. And this is not the only occasion in which Peter was corrected and repented. When Satan uses your sin, when, the way he works is that he will take the commission of your sin and he'll use that to compel you to feel helpless and hopeless. He will get your gaze to turn inward to self, not to turn toward God and, and what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, not to turn, yes, from looking at self to God. He doesn't want us to do that. So we might look inwardly and be horrified by what we see and turn to God. That's, you know, Peter wept bitterly when he realized how how hopeless he had been in his commission of, of this failure of denying Christ. But his brokenness was steered then towards God for restoration in a confession of his sin and a declaration of repentance. Think of Judas who betrayed the Lord and there's a very different response. He went and hanged himself. And I think that was a personal condemnation. When you and I listen to the enemy, the situation becomes helpless and it becomes hopeless. There's, there's no way for us to deal with that situation in and of our own strength. And this is an important point because this leads to us uh, making decisions that are out of um, uh, out of the will of God. They are 
out of character for believers to behave that way. So, um, you know, Judas, he went out and hanged himself. And I know that's in accord with prophecy and these kinds of things, but this was an activity he committed. It's something he did. So um, when we listen to the enemy, and what he says may be true, he may say, look at you, you just did blank. You are hopeless. You're a swine. You're a betrayer. You've betrayed everything about the gospel. He understands the gospel. You've betrayed everything about faith in Jesus. You, you're weak. You surrendered to this minuscule temptation in a moment of self-satisfaction. So um, when we listen to that kind of thing, our, our tendency then is to be opened up to the helplessness, opened up to the hopelessness in that. And, um, uh, you know, and I have sat and listened to Christians who've said to me, I've gone too far. There's no coming back now. How could the Lord accept me? And um, uh, Satan, at that point, he does not want to lift his boot off your neck. That's where he's got you. And that's what he is trying to do, is not only knock you down, but now his boot is on your neck and he's wanting to bring the sword down, metaphorically speaking. So his purpose is not uh, to not allow you a moment of, uh, of opportunity to um, see the light of the conviction of the Spirit and turn to God in repentance and, and find restoration. He does not want that to happen. So let's let's move on as we come to a close today because so we've seen Satan targets your heart and conscience. His weapon is accusation. What is his purpose? His purpose is to bring an indictment by God's will. So there is a, a narrow balance here because the will of God is that we be holy because God is holy. And so when we are unholy, the enemy will say, ha-ha, see, God wants you to be holy and look at you. And so the indictment is against us because the the revealed will of God is that we be holy, as our Father in heaven is holy. So uh, he is very good at doing that. Um, The word says, do not commit adultery, but look at you. You've committed this lustful act. Uh, The word says, do not bear false witness, but look at you. You've spread malicious gossip. Um, You know, whatever it is, Satan wants you to feel guilty, but then to stay in that guilty and uh, possibly even have uh, sorrow over the actions um, feel remorse, all these things, but to internalize it and not um, uh, come to a place of repentance, directing that sin in a, in a prayer of faithful confession to God and request for forgiveness of the sins that we have committed. We mentioned. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10 earlier, 
For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. This is the sorrow that is produced in the word of God. It's produced um, when we get saved through the gospel message and through the teaching of scripture. And as we continue to grow in uh, sanctification, that sorrow uh, is sparked every now and then when we sin, it's sparked so that we would come to God in repentance over that sin. But the sorrow of the world produces death because that sorrow is a shallow sorrow. It is a human-oriented sorrow. It's a sorrow that does not lead to repentance, but instead it, it ends up producing death in us. It's a That's a verse that we could spend a bit more time on um, on another occasion. So he wants to keep accusing you so that you focus on yourself and not on your sins. This is part of the enemy's plan. He wants that focus inward uh, so that you are looking at yourself and not looking um, at the at the sins and uh, looking away from faith in Jesus Christ to looking at, at myself as a failure. Um, uh, so because once we begin to direct our focus away from self and to Jesus, there will be a drawing of the Holy Spirit toward godly sorrow and toward um, repentance a confession of our sins, a place in which we can find cleansing and restoration with God and we can walk in fellowship with God again. But if if you and I are just feeling guilty and worthless and hopeless and helpless, we while we continue to focus on self, we will continue to move further and further uh, from the Lord. True conviction will lead us to God the guilt and the shaming of the enemy will simply lead us further and further into self or away from God. So Satan wants you to feel guilty, but he wants you to dwell in that guilt as an endpoint in itself and not to have remorse toward God, uh, not to have repentance toward God. So he doesn't mind a sense of the dirty robes that that is spoken of um, in the description of Joshua. But the difference is that your Heavenly Father wants you to know, to experience the freedom of forgiveness. He wants you to have that. Life under the dark cloud of guilt prevents us from being able to effectively be a witness for the Lord because when, when we're sensing that, that guilt and that darkness of cloaked sin in our lives where, where we've harbored sin and we, we've covered it up, it prevents us from being able to freely evangelize and witness uh, because we know we're living a hypocritical life. Uh, it prevents us from being able to serve God with, with the, you know, walking in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the blessing of the Holy Spirit and his word. So there are many churches that major in guilt and they, they seem to have a, um, a special thing for um, placing guilt on people's lives. Um, sadly, I think that was part of the makeup of, and the mechanism of the fellowship that Suzanne and I were involved in before. Um, 
We used to pride on the uh, the depth of guilt that the preacher could deliver uh, week by week. Now, there is a place for strong preaching about sin and uh, a proper spiritual conviction um, about sin. Um, but the majoring on the aspect of guilt is only one part of it because in the gospel message there is the presentation of our guilt and there is the remedy to that guilt, faith in Jesus Christ. And so even for the believers, you know, we we can't just allow um, believers to sit and exist in a life that is guilt-ridden without seeing and, and experiencing the freedom from that uh, sin and guilt through the gospel message. So um, otherwise we'll be playing into the devil's hands. Um, now, First and Second Corinthians bring us an example of this because in First Corinthians five and in Second Corinthians uh, chapter two, they reveal both the discipline, a rebuke to the church, and the uh, subsequent discipline of a, a member of the church. But then also in Second um, uh, uh, Corinthians two, that, that individual's life. Um, so. Um, Paul wrote to them and told them about a man who was committing sin and he, he rebuked them for not disciplining that man um, uh, because this is what he had heard. Um, and so the Corinthian believers were very complacent and they refused to act. Um, but Paul's letter seems to have uh, seemed to have shocked them into action and uh, then they went and they disciplined the man and they put him out of fellowship and um, so then we get to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we have these words from Paul because he had to counsel them that now the, the discipline is enough, right? And he says in chapter 2, verse 6, for uh, sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. In other words, the body, look, you've in, you have brought down this punishment upon him and it's enough now. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. That's interesting, isn't it? Because he's saying that this, this removal of the individual and this application of um, uh, uh, an, an unforgiveness towards him can bring upon him an excessive sorrow. Now, Paul outlines the problem. He says, Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end, I also I wrote, so that you might be put, uh, so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have uh, forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his schemes, of his purposes, right? So it does seem that uh, in the disciplining of this man that there is a place in which excessive guilt and sorrow can lead to problems, uh, problems such as a deep and dark despair um, and a, a hopelessness, a, a sense of continual defeat and rejection. Um, and this can be very destructive in people's lives. Even Christians who have 
um, you know, sadly, have been known to attempt suicide and uh, even succeed uh, in that attempt um, because the the accusation and the weight of a condemning guilt uh, against them has been too overwhelming uh, in their lives. So um, at this point, this will obviously bring us into a really powerful finale, and that is the intercession of Jesus. I would remind you of Romans 12 that there is no condemnation, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. All right, so that is a very important statement for us in the light of uh, this message. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord. If you've come out of a um, heavy shepherding kind of church, um, the the answer to a heavy shepherding church is not a um, just a peace, love, and happy juice kind of church. The the answer is the balance of scripture. That's what the answer is 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 found in the balance of scripture. That that you and I are word guided people, uh, Holy Spirit um, led and directed people. Um, and when I say Holy Spirit led and directed, that's not apart from the Word of God. The Holy Spirit will never guide us and direct us into doing things that are opposed to the will of God. Um, so uh, if you've come out of a heavy shepherding church, the answer is not to rebound over into the Word of Faith um, prosperity gospel churches where there seems to be a surface feeling of love because usually you will find that that is just um, emotionalism and often results in emotional manipulation. Look, I know that we um, did not play the scripture text this morning, um, so I'm going to close in a word of prayer. Um, we have the scripture and we have a uh, closing hymn as well. So uh, please take your time to go back over this message um, because I think there is a lot for us to digest uh, here. Um, Within this text, so uh, and within this message, I'm I'm not saying that I am not saying that living a sinful life is okay, but the enemy, his plan and his his attack is to cause in us such a profound sense of hopeless guilt and defeat that would rob us from being able to walk in victory and in fellowship with our Lord and Savior, and that. Uh, that is far from anything that looks like Christianity. Praise the Lord. Our Father, we thank you for this morning. We praise you, Lord God, for true conviction of the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, that you always work to restore us into fellowship with you. And so we ask you, Lord, this morning, bless these thoughts to our hearts. Help us to seek you in your word that we might walk closely with you. Thank you for listening to this message. You're welcome to duplicate this message in its entirety for non-profit purposes. For more information and resources, visit cgc.org.au.